Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. It's time for the Mailbag Podcast. I've been sitting here in my office for three hours saying I'm going to start this. Just keeping, keep getting interrupted one thing after another. So no more. We're doing the Mailbag Podcast right now. First, though, we're going to take a few minutes and hear this um, brief little conversation I had with this month's sponsor. It's actually the executive director of 1120 Ministries, Risa Higgins, and hear her right now. All right, friends, you've heard us talking this month about 1128 Ministries, and we've got on the line our friend, the executive director, Director Risa Higgins. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good, good. So for those who have no clue what spiritual direction is, give us a 30-second elevator pitch of what exactly that is. The short version is that spiritual direction is an ancient art of listening for the movement of God in a person's life alongside of someone who cares about you. That's, That's the shortest version I can give you. That sounds nice. So say I need... Um, some guidance, I need some wisdom, I need someone to help me, I'm feeling a little burnt out. I come to talk to you, and what do you, like, what happens there? Do I sit on the couch and stare up at the ceiling, or, or what do I do in that session? So there are a lot of different ways that spiritual direction takes place. Some of them are, yes, sitting on a couch in my office, but you don't have to lay down and stare at the ceiling, you can sit <laughs> up. Um, but I also do spiritual direction over the phone or over Skype, and for an hour we talk about what's happening in your life. And I'm listening for not only the words that you're using, but I'm listening for what the Spirit is speaking at the same time. And those are the paths that we discover together. And we wonder, if God is active in this part of your life, what's the best way for you to respond? Interesting. When you're feeling burnt out, so many times what you're wondering is, is God even around? Does God even care? what's happening in my ministry in my life. So is this something um, that you have to be a Christian to experience spiritual direction? Or is this for everyone? Or how does that work? So spiritual direction is for everyone. There are traditions of spiritual direction in every major religion. The spiritual direction that I practice is very Christian. Um, I've certainly been influenced by the story of Scripture, and that's where I live and move. Um, but it's for everyone, and it's not just for ministers or church leaders. Spiritual direction is for anyone who desires to seek God in their life. Hmm. So what is the difference in spiritual direction from, say, traditional counseling, whether it's psychotherapy or uh, you know, someone from an MFT background? Yeah, so spiritual direction begins from a point of health. We start from what's good in your life, what's working in your life, because I believe that's where the Spirit is present and active, and let's follow that. Traditional counseling begins from, this is the place that hurt and is broken in me. Tell me how to fix it. Okay. Both are, both are very valuable, but they do start from a different place. Interesting, interesting. And so the way that works is someone wants spiritual direction. They're maybe feeling burnt out, or maybe life is good, and they want someone to help them. Uh, keep processing life the way that they're doing right now that is working out for them, they have to come meet you? Or you said before you could do some stuff over the phone as well. How does that work? I work with directees literally all over the world. So we set up a time to talk on the phone or over Skype or over any other uh, media that allows us to see each other face-to-face. There's tons of different programs that do that. Um, and 
literally, I have directees in China and in Cambodia and in Mexico and in New York and in California, and I live in Dallas, Texas. So I visit with people all over the world. Good. Well, I tend to think everyone from the world needs direction from a Texan. It seems like that's a very good thing that's happening. Well, you get a better accent that way anyway. <laughs> okay, so you've got something coming up on the, uh, is it the 28th? Next, uh, I it, guess it'll be the Saturday after I post this. Yes, absolutely. Eleven twenty-eight day is our big um, fundraiser of the year, and you might note that the date is eleven twenty-eight fifteen, and we're kind of cutesy that way. We think it's fun that it's the same as the name of our ministry, eleven twenty-eight. And you'll see all over social media, you'll see a video that we post about the work that we do and asking people to partner with us. In, the, in, in that work, and there are tons of different ways that you can give, and really our only purpose is this, help us share the word about how important it is to support ministers and church leaders in their own spiritual growth in life. That's great. So if someone says, I do care about ministers, I care about church, I care about people who are fostering spiritual conversations, how does their donation to 1128 Ministries on 1128.15 make that difference? Well, we have a lot of people that I work with that can't afford to pay for spiritual direction. Um, either their church budget, budget doesn't allow it or their own pers- personal budget doesn't allow it. And so we want to be able to offer direction to them no matter what. It also takes money to use the technology that we use in order to be able to stay in touch with people. Wow. So this is a great way to invest in churches and church leaders uh, by giving them the opportunity of spiritual direction, which as a minister, I find having that kind of safe place where you can do this to be a very important thing. So I love what you're doing next Saturday. This is going to be all over social media. So you don't even have to show up. You can sit in your home on your couch and help out a great cause. Is that we would love for you to do that. Yes. Standing. Well, Hey, thank you for the time. It's great talking with you and people can find that information on where, where will they find this on social media? It's going to show up on Facebook. It's going to show up on Twitter. It's going to show up on our website, 1128ministries.org. It's going to be everywhere that day. Perfect. All right. Perfect. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Luke. Let's do the thing. We've got a handful of questions today that we're going to get to in this November mailbag podcast. And so we're going to, um, we're going to start with our friend, Alex. This is what Alex writes. He says... Long-time listener, first-time writer. I'm particularly thankful for your two-parter with Richard Beck and Rob Bell. Mind-expanding and inspiring. Now, I don't normally reach out like this, but I saw the recent podcast and listened to it about the Enneagram. And to be honest, seeing it made me think, "Uh uh-oh. The church I left after five years adopted a very unhealthy love for the Enneagram, so much so that my reaction to it now is repellent. At that church, the Enneagram became an idol. They seemed... Uh, That seems an accurate label for it. I took the test slash assessment. uh, Side note, Richard Rohr says, don't do that. And just thought it was novel slash nifty. Oh, I'm a five. I guess that fits. However, the leadership at the church came to use the Enneagram as a way to label people and categorize them. They went to it first instead of the gospel. Of course, she would say that. She's a nine. It also became a crutch for people. Like, why should I improve? Well, I'm a four. That's just how fours are. Uh, I hope you see what I mean. Okay, uh, so we're going to stop right there, Alex. Um, first of all, let's talk about the question behind the question. 
the first question is, what do you do with the Enneagram when you've had someone uh, abuse it, misuse it? What, have you, what do you do with anything when it's intended to be good, but it has clearly been a bad experience? Which obviously, Alex, that is a bad experience. Anytime people are um, not even expecting people to grow, but just say, that's who you are. That's, that's not what the Enneagram is about. Um, so the bigger question though is like, how do you disassociate bad experiences from every experience? Let me tell you about my first job. My first job out of school, I went to a church, uh, as a 24 year old preacher and six months after I'm there, all my elders resign. Not anything to do with me, but uh, an issue that uh, involved the police, and, uh, it, and we, we won't go into detail on that. But it was not a pretty affair, and it just was ugly. Um, and so my first experience, all the elders resigned, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the uh, My experience there was not what someone would describe as an ideal first encounter. Now, it would be easy for me to say, that's just what church is like. That's how churches work. And I've had multiple people come up to me and say, man, I can't believe you stayed in ministry after that first in- encounter, first experience. And uh, I kind of I get that. I know there's a lot of ministers who have uh, bad experiences at churches and just go, well, I'm done with church altogether. But they're, uh, And for them, I'm not judging them to make that career decision. But for, for me, what I didn't want to say is this experience is every experience. It seems like that's how some prejudices are born and formed inside of us because we have one bad experience. Oh, I, I, I met a person in this group of people and they did X, Y, and Z. Therefore, all people in that group are like this. I had a buddy of mine from LA who said, uh, I was hesitant to ever trust a white person. Uh, the friend of mine was a Hispanic gentleman. And he said, I, I would, didn't want to trust white people because I always thought white people were just after your money. And so he had an experience which made him have this prejudice against white people. And unless he was able to move past that experience, he was not able to experience everyone's experience, uh, which says that's not always the case. They're not, every, not every white person's after his money. I wasn't after his money. So the larger question is, how do you get past a bad experience and not universalize it to every experience? And I think a big part of that requires you to have conversations with people uh, outside of maybe your realm. So if you just talk to people from that church specifically, Alex, about the Enneagram, they're probably all having a fairly similar bad experience. It sounds like that church misused it. Uh, I think that's the benefit of podcasts and the internet is it connects you to a wide swath of people and you can hear more experiences than just your own experience. Because there are places that use it well. Use the Enneagram as a great tool. I had a buddy who just took a job up in Wisconsin. And before he went there, he also took an assessment, a test, and it said that he was an eight, uh, which is exactly the number I thought my friend of many years was. And it, I think it helped that church say, this is who he is. This is the kind of position he needs to be in. This is how he will thrive. It's a good way to use that. The Enneagram is ultimately, uh, to use some Richard Rohr language, it's about non-dualistic thinking. It's not saying... Um, you know, you're a bad person because this is your number. That's your number. It's, this is who you are. Let's learn how to live out of your strengths and minimize the weaknesses that come with your personality. And I think there are plenty of examples of people using the Enneagram for good things. Honestly, if, if any of you went to see Rob Bell's tour this summer, uh, Rob's a seven and 
what a seven doesn't want to do is to feel pain. And I think what you see Rob doing is he's encouraging people to go into that gray space to the unknown, to the uncomfortable. And that's almost a reoccurring theme you see with him. And uh, as someone who's also a seven, I find myself going towards that area because I know that is so unnatural for me as a seven to sit into the discomfort. But there's something that I've become aware of that for me to grow, that's what I've got to do. I've got to do the uncomfortable thing. So, uh, Alex, let's not universalize your experience. It was clearly a bad experience, and I hate that for you. As someone who's kind of had some shady church experiences every once in a while, uh, side note, my church when I was a boy, uh, got burnt down to the ground by a member we were trying to help. So, uh, yeah, sometimes churches um, have these fiery experiences that don't work out too well for people, but there are other churches that are doing things a whole lot better, and that's just part of human nature. So, sorry, bro. Sorry. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, this is from a gentleman named Noel. Noel? Uh, I don't know if he's the first Noel, but he's a no. I don't know how to say that name. I think it's Noel. Uh, I, I believe he is from uh, the Northeast. And so this is what he says. Uh, first of all, first off, it's good to hear that Sarah Bessie is coming back on the show. I'm still waiting for my copy of Out of Sorts, but everything I've heard about it so far sounds amazing. Side note, it is amazing. Back to the text. I'm not exactly sure how to word this, but what would you say to those who find themselves in a church that's going in a diametrically different direction than they are, particularly when the church is aggressively against other ways of thinking? Now, that's a good question. Actually, I've posed a very similar question to Sarah Bessie for you, Noel, Noel, uh, because I wanted her to give you her take on that subject since she did talk about it in the book. Now, here's my take. The The question that I hear you asking is, what do you do when you're at a church that doesn't see things the way you see it? And your reading of text or your understanding of the world, or your understanding of God, isn't consistent with the way that the church understands God, text, scripture, all that stuff. I think, first of all, is it hurting people? I think that's the first question. Is this church hurting people? Is the way um, they're understanding theology and the way you treat people hurting people? Because I think good theology creates good living. Good theology always leads to better treatment of people. And so if your church is loving, I think that's a good place to start. And if it's hurting people, then you've got to ask some tough questions because Sarah Bessie's suggestion is to say, it's okay to go sometimes. And you know what? There might be some truth to that. Uh, Let me give you the flip side of that. Sometimes what the church needs is people who are the outliers to stay there and to keep the conversation going and to not let the church turn people who think a little bit differently from them on subjects like X, Y, and Z into straw men. And so if there's no people, there's no flesh and bones on people who think about, you know, whatever subject in the church, it's easy to dehumanize that entire group of people and say, well, those people are just like, whatever. And so you being there is the personification of this idea and say, no, this is a valid way of understanding the world and you can do this and be loving and kind. Because sometimes people who maybe are outliers are, you know, maybe more whatever word you want to use than the church they're part of um, need to be there to help stir the conversation. Now, another thing that maybe we should do is to ask 
what's my fault in the problem? Like, what am I doing to perpetuate the drama? Now, you might, Noel, be doing nothing wrong. And let's just assume you are. But there are other people who have been a part of churches and they started to read things and think things that have pushed them to maybe a little bit beyond the comfort level of everyone else in the church. And sometimes when they've done that, they've started to act a little bit cocky. They've been pompous. They've been supercilious. And people just don't like it. I had a buddy of mine tell me that he started reading uh, a book. I think it was one of Rob's books. And his wife said, uh, man, everyone who reads those books are just arrogant. And I hate that that's her experience with everyone who read you know, any book by Rob Bell, which is terrible. Um, but what I think she's touching on is a real propensity that we have to say, okay, I've been quote unquote enlightened. And so now I can look back on everyone else and go, I'm better than you. That's not what it's all about. So you might have a progress understanding of something and you might have moved past maybe a very uh, unhealthy fundamentalist understanding of text and everyone else your church might not have gotten to that point yet. But if you act arrogant toward them, what they're going to see is not the good things you can bring to the conversation. All they will see are the flaws that are being magnified by your progression. Your progression gives you an opportunity to let your arrogance grow and fester. And that's not good. You don't want to do that. So before you start asking the question of, you know, how's this church treating me? Ask the question of like, how are you treating the rest of the people in the church? And are you being welcoming? Are you being loving to them? Now, sometimes you are, and sometimes they are just being flat out heartless to you. And there's some ways of thinking that say, if you don't agree with me, then you're going to burn in hell. Uh, I come from a tradition uh, where sometimes we had a um, tendency to say, if you don't do one of the sacraments, specifically baptism, the exact same way that we do baptism, then you're not going to get into heaven. Now, the reason that is, is because there was a high view and a very literal interpretation of how X, Y, and Z is done. And okay, that's fine. You think that way. But if you start treating other people and saying, because of the way our theology is, we don't think you're going to make it into heaven, uh, you're not treating people well. And good theology always creates good living. Good theology always treats to more love and kindness and grace and mercy. And so sometimes if you've progressed past other people, they see you as a threat to their worldview. They see you as a threat to the way that they understand things. And it's kind of hard to... Um, to have you around because you undo their worldview and you're pulling apart bricks and pieces that support their entire framework for understanding everything. And so you're a threat to them. And so I think in that conversation, if you're going to stay there, which I think has to be your first impulse to say, I want to try to work this out. You've got to understand that you've got to be there giving love to people. It's, it's like the story of Jackie Robinson, who was the first African-American baseball player in uh, I think he played for the Dodgers. And when he was the first African-American baseball player, he was not held to the same standard as every other baseball player. He had to be outstanding on the field and off the field. And he obviously was. I think he was like a three-sport, four-sport athlete at UCLA where he went to college. Uh, he was an outstanding Hall of Fame baseball player. And he was uh, just the, the paragon of grace and mercy to people who treated him so poorly. And 
if you had just an average African-American baseball player to be the first African-American baseball player, it wouldn't have worked out. You had to have someone who was exceptional at doing it. And so for some of us who are maybe the first people in our churches to present a different way of understanding theology and God, you're going to be held to a higher standard. This is a lot of what uh, women in ministry have to do. They're expected uh, in some context to be the first, and so they are held to a substantially higher standard. And we need some people in the vanguard who are willing to deal with some of the extra drama that you have to deal with when you're breaking some barriers um, so that our churches can progress. So, um, I hope that helps, and now we're going to go to one that's uh, an audio one. So let's listen to this question. Let's see if we can make Hey, it. Luke. Big fan of the podcast. I've been listening for a long time. You've kept me awake on many long drives, and so I just really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast and the way you interview all of your guests and share insights with uh, just what they're saying for the rest of us to be able to pick up on. Uh as I've been listening to the podcast for a long time, uh, I just I think it's fairly obvious that the podcast favorite is Jonathan Stormont. Uh, Johnny Storm is what makes Newsworthy with Norsworthy as good as it is. And so my question to you is, when are you just going to let Stormont have his own episode of the podcast, let him take over, and let us see the real Johnny Storm? Thanks, Luke. Uh, okay, that's an easy question. Never? Uh, that's that's never going to happen. Uh, I feel almost um, complicit in perpetuating this because I could have let you fall asleep on some road trips and um, you'd never been able to call me if that happened. So I'm sorry that I helped you and now you've in turn hurt me by saying such a terrible thing. Uh, I believe his name is Josh from Colorado. So thanks a lot, buddy. Uh, no, Stormont's not going to take over. We don't want him leading a podcast and doing an expose on dumpster fires and homeschool athletics no thank you not happening thanks for calling though next question is from a gentleman named nathan from sussex new brunswick um i have no clue what that is that sounds like a disease i've got a sussex new brunswick anyway nathan thanks for sending the question and even though i don't know where you are but i appreciate you uh he says hey luke love your show thanks for all the work you do Love listening to the show. Your, uh, my question for you is, as a pastor, what do you think it'll take for the church to maintain unity over how we believe God views gay people and their romantic relationships? All right. Why don't you just go ahead and give me an easy question, Nathan? Um, okay, so how do we, what do we think it'll take for the church to maintain unity over how we believe God views gay people and their romantic relationships? Now, the question of unity, interesting, interesting, interesting. I think, first of all, what it's going to require us to do, if we're going to be serious about unity and serious about our response to the LGBTQ community, uh, it's going to require people in the church to stop judging the other side. You will inevitably find yourself with people in your family, in your life, in your church that have differences of opinion on the subject. And they have strong opinions as to why their opinion is the correct opinion. And it's easy for people, say, on the conservative side to think that the people who take the other side, the liberal side on the subject, as people who don't care about the Bible or truth or right and wrong. And people... On the more liberal side of this, 
it's easy for you to look at people on the conservative side and to say you don't love people. You don't love the gay community. You don't care about them at all. Stop judging people. That's the first thing we have to do. We have to stop thinking that the other people are terrible people just because they disagree with us. There was a book, uh, Catherine Schultz, I think is the name. Uh, the book is Being Wrong, which at first I thought was a marriage book that my wife was giving me because <laughs> I'm always wrong. Uh, that was a joke. Someone was here, they'd be laughing right now. Um, but the book on being wrong, I think she says that one of the, the first or second responses we make when we find someone who disagrees with us is at first we think they don't understand what we're really saying. And then we think, oh, well, they're just not smart people. And then we think they're bad people. Someone can Google that and check those exactly what they are. But Ultimately, what she says, there's part of our natural response to people who disagree with us is just to think that they're dumb or ignorant. And you can't do that. That's not fair. That's not how we should treat people. Excuse me. If unity is going to be important for us, we can't judge and assume other people's intentions are the worst all the time. And that requires us to not just know these people who disagree with us, but to actually spend time with them. I've got a buddy who's a pastor uh, at a church in a very racially divided town, uh, the town of Memphis, Tennessee. And my buddy Josh was telling me that uh, he he knows people who are adults who've been alive for decades, and they never once have shared a meal with people of the opposite skin color from them. He knows white people who've never once put their feet under a table and shared a meal with an African-American person. And you go, how, how could we ever progress in the way that we treat people who are different from us if we don't spend time together? There's something about realizing that we are all humans. We're in this together. We don't need to think that you're a terrible person because you disagree. Obviously, this is a big deal. Obviously, this affects a lot of people. And when you have uh, your own kids involved, when you have your brother, your sister, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad, it becomes super complex. But if we always villainize the people who disagree with us on this issue, we will never be able to have the unity that my friend Nathan from Sussex, New Brunswick is asking us to do. And part of me wonders, and this is completely tongue-in-cheek, so don't take it too literally, but sometimes I wonder why anyone cares about the church's stance on homosexuality when no one really listens to what we have to say about heterosexuality. We don't. Like, we, we talk about abstinence, monogamy, fidelity, building blocks for a Christian sexuality, and no one listens to us when we talk about those things with heterosexuality. So what's the big fuss about talking about homosexuality? I'm obviously saying that tongue-in-cheek. Don't take me literally on that. But I do think we need to listen to our stuff on heterosexuality more. Okay, let's go to the next question. Uh, this one is from Sylvania? Sylvania? I think that's like Italian. Anyway, uh, this is a friend of mine from uh, Connecticut. And this is her question. She says, Hey, Luke, I would like to submit a question for the mailbag podcast. Uh, having gone through some faith deconstruction and reconstruction in recent years, I've appreciated the roundup of guests you've had on who helped me think outside the box while staying firmly grounded in truth that reflect the person of Christ. While they all have their own unique way of living out their faith, there is a common ground of faith that has the kingdom of Christ as a foundation. 
I found your recent conversation with Brent Sullivan to be such a contrast with him not being a Christian. It was a great conversation that reminded me of what it's like to be someone on the outside looking in. My question is, in light of your conversations with people like Rohr, N.T. Wright, Zond, uh, how have these guests, writers' perspectives changed, if they have changed, how you think about unbelievers and their relationship to God? I guess I would really like to hear more about your deconstruction slash reconstruction in regard to those outside the faith, as well as any other ways your views have changed due to what you've read slash discussed with your guest. Sorry this is so long. Feel free to condense. No, I didn't condense that one. That's just as long as it was. Okay, uh, so question is, like as someone who's gone through construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, which is a common theme that I've found with many of our guests, many of the people that uh, are interesting to me because that's part of my journey. Like you, you start with one understanding of God and you realize this doesn't work and you have to deconstruct it. And then the question you're faced with, do I just walk away from faith altogether or do I reconstruct something new? And so I'm glad that you're going through that, too. I think uh, we're fellow journeyers on this path together. So how do we interact with people like uh, Brent Sullivan, who's someone who would self-identify as a non-Christian person? Uh, that's part of the reason why I did that podcast, because I wanted to... Uh, I don't know if I wanted to show. I just want to have a conversation with someone who's interesting to me, first of all. But the reason I posted it is because I feel like if what we do and what we discuss can't be translated to people who don't have our same worldview, our same spirituality, Christianity, then it's not worth anything. Because one of the weird things about church is one of, it is one of the few, if not the only institutions that exist for the good of those not in its organization. We do this not for ourselves, but for others. And so uh, I want to be able to say that people of Jesus, Jesus people can be a loving presence to everyone. And so uh, my attitude when I interact with someone who's not a Jesus person is to say, first of all, that's who I am. I'm a Jesus person. But I also know that I don't convert people. Like I, I used to have this attitude that I could convert people and, and I have stories to tell that that uh, sound like I had short-term conversions. Um, as I've gotten older, I realize that's not really how it works. It seems like people uh, respond to the presence of God in their life. And sometimes people are involved, uh, friends, outsiders, writers, authors, preachers, those like are involved in the process, but they aren't the ones who are actually doing it. They're more just playing a small, small role in someone else's own spiritual journey. So I don't do like friendship evangelism. I know that's a, a popular thing in church. Like, you know, you want to build relationships so you can uh, convert people to your religion. Uh, but I kind of find that to be disingenuous. Like I, as someone who's had friends who do those pyramid scheme businesses where, okay, you come here and you'll be my friend. And I'll tell you about this organization that that's teaching me to sell health or cleaning or whatever. Uh, it, it always seems like that, thing commodifies relationships and it turns your relationships as a tool for you to get something. And so even with evangelism, which if we want to use the, the crass business language of selling, you're selling a very good product. Jesus, I think, is the best product there is. But what I don't want to happen is for me to start treating people as though they are something I'm trying to win over. 
uh, I, I want to be present for them. I want to love them, but I don't want them to think that I have ulterior motives. Because ultimately, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I wouldn't feel good if someone's using my friendship to manipulate me to, to do something, no matter how altruistic those desires are. If you're not just accepting me for who I am, I don't want to be there. That's not friendship. So what I try to do is I want to be friends. I want to love people. Uh, I want to find common ground, things that we can both agree on to be important, whether that's love, justice, gratitude, beauty, uh, the arts, whatever it is. And I want to start there. And Jesus is a big part of my life. It's going to bubble out into my conversations and that's going to happen naturally, but, um, I'm not pushing the issue. I'm just trying to be present and love people and, uh, see what happens from there. So, uh, I hope that answers your question, my friend from Connecticut. Uh, if not, uh, my bad. Let's try it again. Send me another question. Maybe I'll fix it the second time. Uh, here's the next one. Would you like to comment on rumors on Twitter that you talk about killing people in your sermons? No, I don't. No, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, they can't be substantiated, uh, and I've never been uh, charged with that in an actual court of law. So uh, I don't talk about killing people a lot in my sermons. Um, but the time I do, it's um, well-deserved. Okay, let's go to one gentleman named James from North Carolina. Hi, Luke. Thank you for taking questions. Uh, each one of your podcasts has introduced me to a new voice, many of which I've continued to research and follow afterwards. James from North Carolina, that's awesome to hear. Great. Uh, now, some, some of your guests at one point or another have been called out and have been criticized for leading Christians astray. Wow. Uh, in circles, both professionally and personally, are the views of your guest welcome and respected? Uh, I mean, as you and Sarah Bessie said on your recent podcast, aren't we all on the same team? Okay. Question is, uh, some people in your podcast have been called out, said that they're not teaching the truth. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's a the guy that I worked for named Rick at a church in Fort Worth. And in my tradition, he led his church to do something that typically doesn't happen. And that's go instrumental. He did that like eight or however many years ago. He was called a heretic. I actually saw a YouTube clip of him talking about that subject. And there was links to people who said how terrible he was connected to that. Yes, he's called a heretic. Maybe in the bigger Christian world, uh, N.T. Wright, who was just on has been called a heretic who doesn't care about atonement because of what he calls the new perspective on Paul, trying to say that the Old Testament isn't legalistic and the New Testament love. It's all the same God, uh, which makes atonement seem not as important. I think that's a false critique, just like uh, the first one was. Our friend Pete Enns, uh, yeah, he, he was in the middle of a little bit of controversy uh, over some of his uh, stuff about inspiration and incarnation. So yeah, there are uh, some who've, who've been called out. Um, there's also people from the Protestant Reformation who were called out as heretics, uh, people like Luther, uh, who've had a big part in the last 500 years of Christianity, even though at the time they were called heretics. Um, uh, people who said slavery wasn't, wasn't correct, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in the Bible, there seems to be plenty of people who were called out in their context for being false teachers. I think Paul was uh, said that a time or two if you read the old book of Acts. So um, I feel like the, the guests of my show are in good company when they've been critiqued. Um, 
So here's the real question of like what deems something to be inbounds and out of bounds? Like what are subjects that people are allowed to talk about and disagree on and still be in the tribe? And what are things that make them outside of the tribe? I had a buddy of mine uh, I was having lunch with back when I lived in Denton, and he is someone who probably would call uh, a few people that I like a whole lot to be uh, – not Christians anymore because they ask some interesting questions that uh, I don't think are heretical at all. But he says, at some point you leave the borders of the country known as Christianity and you're not in anymore. And the problem is, who gets to define where those borders are? Like who defines what's in and what's out? It seems like there's gatekeepers. And a lot of times you want to look at... uh, some who are the gatekeepers on the conservative side and say, I can't believe you guys have this gatekeeper mentality. And on the progressive side, they, they critique them. Um, but I think you also have gatekeepers on the progressive side, and they're doing the same thing, just in different, uh, different ways. And uh, the thing is, we all have these things that we say are out of bounds. And for some, it's one thing, it's another, it's another thing. Uh, But I feel like the best thing is to be okay to listen to people who don't agree even with your boundary markers because we all have blind spots. We all have our prejudices. We all have the things that we think we're 100% right about and there's no possibility that I could ever be wrong on it. And if you're not willing to let other people in and maybe kind of shed some light on things that you don't really feel um, need to be revealed, then I don't think we're ever going to grow. We're not going to gain more knowledge. We're not going to get more wisdom because we're just going to sit in our own little bubbles that uh, we don't ever want to question. And so I think what you have to do to be able to wrestle with these things is have humility and honesty. And most of all, I don't think you can operate out of fear. I think there's a lot of fear that causes people to not listen to other voices because the question is, if I listen to them, then my faith is going to fall apart. And if Your faith is so brittle that one person mentioning one thing on a conversation, one book saying the one thing that disagrees with you, um, you probably didn't have a whole lot of faith to begin with, right? If, If you think that one person articulating the contrary opinion than your opinion can dismantle your entire theological structure, then your theological structure was, as Jesus probably would have said, built upon sand. And so we have to be able to listen to disagreeing opinions so that we can grow and we can become uh, more wise and more grounded in who we are. So um, question was... uh, Answered. I hope that was an answer to your question, James, from North Carolina. Uh, everyone has sacred cows, but um, sacred cows, like they say, make the best hamburgers. So sometimes you got to sacrifice them. All right, uh, another question from California. My friend Shane says, very simple question. How long do you prep for each segment? Um, I don't know. Uh, it kind of depends. Uh, I think I pretty much read the book and then... I write out some ideas of things that are interesting to me. And then, uh, as our friend Bruce Lee says, be like water. And wherever the conversation goes, hopefully I have something to say about that. And if not, um, 
we just make some stuff up. So, uh, answer your question. I don't know. Read the book, write some ideas down, and that's about it. Uh, yeah, that's it. So, all right, uh, that's the all, the all the mailbag questions we're going to get to this time. That was eight questions that I think uh, we answered pretty well. And if not, sorry, send another question and we'll 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 do a follow up. But seriously, y'all, thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate y'all. And um, I'm done. So, tiddly do. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.